Hi, I'm Susie Lau. I'm a fashion journalist and this is Made to Last, the first ever podcast from Mulberry, the British label known for the beautiful leather pieces it has been creating for the past 50 years. When Mulberry invited me to host a podcast about leather to showcase the goals set out in their Made to Last manifesto, I saw it as a chance to discover more about the material and answer some questions. The Mulberry Made to Last manifesto was launched a year ago as a commitment to transform the business to a regenerative and circular model with the aim of achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2035. I myself love leather and have no intention of giving it up. But what I would really like to find out is, can we love this material in a way that is responsible? In this series, I'll be talking all things leather, because that's what Mulberry's all about. I'll be hearing from everyone from leather lovers to industry insiders, as well as the people asking the difficult questions about the material, driven by environmental concerns. I'll also be asking, why do we love leather so much? How did it become so highly valued in the fashion industry? And how can it bring about positive change if we support regenerative farming practices? In this bonus episode, I'm heading to New York via Zoom to talk to the model and knitwear designer Ella Emhoff. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to grab a few minutes with the Parsons graduate during a photo shoot for Mulberry to see what a resident New Yorker thinks when it comes to leather her whole approach to fashion, and of course, what sort of bag is she carrying? Hi. Can you hear me okay? Good to meet you. Yep, loud and clear. Really nice to meet you. So how is the Mulberry shoot going? It's extremely fun. I walked on and saw all the clothing they picked and it's extremely me. It's all very soft and knit and striped. And then we've just been shooting on a bouncy castle and it's 80 degrees. Fun. So it's, it is really energetic, but surprisingly the bouncy castle is cooling and a little, there's more of a breeze cause everyone else is directly in the sun. Sounds lush. I'm jealous. Mulberry is an iconic British brand, as you know. What would you say, and I love actually asking this question to just Americans in general, uh, what would you say you and your friends find most quirky about us Brits? <laughs> well, that's, that's funny. I actually grew up around, my mom works in production, so we have a lot of people coming in from London. And the funniest thing when I was younger was always the slang and just like random, like going to the loo or the lift, like that (laughs) always was so interesting to me. But I think now that I've grown up more, I can imagine it's the same way for a lot of the stuff Americans say. And just a lot of that like shorthand. I think whenever I think of British style, it's really separated into like two categories. I think first, I think of a lot of films that portray 60s British style, like Clockwork Orange, almost like futuristic, very colorful. And I also just watched the Beatles documentary, Get Back and it makes me think of a lot of collared shirts, a lot of vests and a lot of slack type things. Yeah, I think leather, I think mulberry, I think loafers, 
But then there's this other section of kind of the more fashion-based where I think big tool and color and this almost like punky Eccentric. princess. Exactly. So I think what I love about British style is it's so, there's so many different ways you can look at it and there's so many different styles. It's hard to pinpoint just one. Who were your fashion icons then when you were like growing up? I know that's always like a very tricky question. It is it is for me anyway, because it's like so hard to pin down, right? Yeah, I feel like I went through different waves of fashion icons because my style has gone through so many iterations from even being 10 years old to now being 22. Like at first, the only big exposure to fashion I had was my mom. And she loved, she had a big closet of vintage pieces, new pieces. And I would always go in and dress up and I was really inspired by her. But then once I was able to kind of think for myself and have access to social media, I was a big Tumblr person. And I looked up to a lot of the the soft grunge or sea punk, like very eclectic types. And I fed into that a lot more and I think now just people in general on the streets on social media like it's so easy to find inspiration from everyone it's hard to say oh I think this person is super stylish Mm. or this one it's it's a mix of everyone and no one because I think style is so fun to really be bold with it and do what you really want and not be kind of influenced by someone else yeah I always find that question difficult because I generally never looked up to like celebrities and it was always like my friend or like uh, you know yeah exactly like people just randomly on the street like if you're in Tokyo or if you're like in some place that you've never been to so um, what was your mum's style like yeah it sounds really intriguing what was her what was her vibe it was It changed day to day because some days I would see her in a full suit going to work with giant stilettos. The only thing that stayed consistent was her love of heels. But then the next day she would be in a crazy floral dress. She loves any reason to be in a full outfit. So every day she treated it like she was going to the Met. (laughs) So she likes a look then. She loves a look. Oh, yeah. A pure maximalist. (laughs) Actually, that must have inspired you as well in some ways. The maximalism. Oh, totally. Because I would see that and say, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is what I find interesting. And so when it comes to bags and everyone kind of has a preference, are you like an arm candy person or a back? person or are you a sling over the shoulder crossbody what's what's your what's your bag toting style of choice I used to be a big backpack person because I never had a love for bags or I never found one that I was super excited about but now I'm it's hard to say because I have a lot of bags that are small more arm candy I just throw my phone and my wallet in But I think as a day-to-day bag, it's over-the-shoulder, more tote style, because I have so much that I need to bring 
just to exist as a human. Like my little makeup lotion bag already is like that mm. big. So that can't really fit in all places. So I think if we're going arm candy or backpack, I would definitely be a backpack girl. So obviously uh, now as, as a model and someone who wears, you know, uh, get, is asked to wear leather, professionally speaking, in your opinion, like how do you think luxury brands can kind of lead the way in terms of like best practice around manufacturing and public understanding? Because we've been having this kind of conversation about leather and people's like attitudes towards leather and, you know, intergenerational relationship with leather as well. Yeah, I think it's definitely when it comes to anything brand related and sustainability, it's always an interesting topic to talk about because with creating any kind of like good or consumer good, there's always a give and a take. And I think one of the easiest ways to be sustainable and also kind of get rid of that waste factor is to keep the circular manufacturing going because there's so much excess material from all of these brands and any kind of company or product that's made with leather, I think kind of reusing those products to create goods is the one that I find most interesting because you can create something like a bag or a pair of pants or something from a product that's made for leather seats. And you can really, it forces you to be really creative and also get rid of a very detrimental factor of climate change and just waste in general, which is textile waste. So, or I guess this leather waste, but I think I find it also just interesting that a lot of people haven't integrated that into their ethos or systems because there is just so much product. Like when I was in school, there's a company called Fab Scrap who takes excess materials from a bunch of different designers and gives them to fashion students. And like, even that is such a small thing for kids in school. And to imagine that on a bigger scale for large luxury, luxury brands, I can imagine some really interesting products could be made, but it would cut down on so much excess. I mean, Obviously, because of your background at Parsons, we were also talking about, you know, just there is like a new generation of designers and creators just inherently have this circularity like in their in their minds already. Like it's not it's not even like something to think about. It's just sort of like a a no brainer almost. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot, especially because when you're in school, it can be really expensive to buy all all new materials. So people will go to thrift stores or go to a Goodwill and find excess fabric and create whole collections out of that. And it makes you be really resourceful. And when you're in New York and you have access to so many things, even reaching out to a brand and asking if they have excess stuff, like it's super helpful and kind of creates, I feel like a new generation of innovative designers is coming up right now because they're having to do some thrifty techniques to create these high quality collections. And with COVID, not being able to really go out and source materials, you're having to use what is 
like immediately in your vicinity, which mm-hmm. I think is actually weirdly helpful to a lot of yeah. people. Yeah, almost like the limitations become like a form of creativity in itself. Exactly, because I felt that personally, because I started making stuff during lockdown and having to wait for shipments or use yarn that I had when I was 12 years old. It really changes the way you think about design and construction. Mm, So let's talk about your knitwear label because um, it does have this very like homespun well, it is literally a homespun quality to it. You know, how old were you when you learned to knit? And I think it's mostly crochet, crochet and a combination of knit and crochet. I was eight years old, I think, when I learned to knit. My mom taught me when we went to Disneyland one year. We did a girls' trip, and it was really slow at first. I would knit with my grandma. I would knit by myself. I'd knit with my mom, but I never made it past this much my fingers weren't as dexterous (laughs) and then so then what was like the first kind of complete piece because I I just remember doing a scarf and I felt really proud and that's that's all I've ever done the first thing I made I originally just made like a rectangle and because I ran out of yarn I didn't know what to do with it and then I folded it in half and made a little beanie that because of the shape looked like it had cat ears. Um, and I still wear it to this day. It's one of my favorite hats. Is it like an official label? Or is it? Are you doing like kind of just like special commissions for people? Or? I started out just doing commissions because I mostly had it as a hobby. I didn't know if I wanted to lean more towards the fine arts aspect of my work for the design but more recently in the past year I've it's it's a label I'm going to be doing collection drops it's still just me so it's all very handmade one of one which for now I think is extremely fun and adds a real sense of excitement to the pieces all of the pieces are made from scraps of yarn that I was making commissions with in lockdown So, and with pieces or in with yarn that I had from college and middle school and high school. So Mm -hmm. I try and not think about my pieces as, oh, what do I want this to look like? I'm going to go search for materials Mm -hmm. to make it. I look at all the materials I have and then I think of the piece I want to make because I don't like to buy yarn that much anymore just because I have so much and I have so many things I could make. So I find it a really fun process to be able to just look, go into my studio, look and think, okay, we'll do this today. We have a bunch of orange and a bunch of green. Let's see what happens. Mm, And I guess that gives it like a sort of different, almost like a, not a retro vibe, you know, with like, if you're using like older yarns or like colors that are like a bit of its time kind of thing. Yeah, I've been trying to get people to send me their mom or grandparents' yarn collections, and I'm going to try and make a collection out of that in itself, because I'll get these big boxes of yarn, and there'll be little notes or little tags, and there's a lot of character in it, which I think in itself is leading me to certain design choices that some of the more modern yarns I have now wouldn't have led me to. So I find the the story behind yarn 
almost as interesting as the final products. Mm. I think knitting for most people is a very sort of like, you know, it's like a quite slow, relaxing, very offline activity. It's something to do when you want to like escape modern day life and our fast pace. Um, I mean, and you're very active on social media. How do you personally like balance kind of that online activity with just, you know, doing stuff IRL for yourself or like that kind of separation from from real real life? Yeah, it's been a, a tough balance, especially because in such a short amount of time, my life has become very public. So I think before everything happened, I was a lot more active on social media in a very personal way. But I think post everything, it's become my job in a sense. And I share my knitwear on there. I share photographs, like everything. So I've actually had to change the way that I look at my downtime because I used to knit to relax myself, but now I knit as work Mm. as well. So I've been... I've been trying to keep the balance by reading a lot more and trying to keep my social media presence as my job. And then whenever I'm doing things like hanging out with friends and going to dinner, just cooking, it it feels a lot more relaxing and nice because I'm actually in the moment. And that's something that I don't always feel if I'm sharing that on Instagram or Facebook or whatever Facebook (laughs) but I think it's a it's a tough balance for everyone because so much of life right now is based off of social media presence and that's how a lot of people are sharing their work and their lives so it's tough when they're the lines between your real life and social media life are blurred Mm. So uh, on that note, what are your plans for some IRL fun for the rest of the the year, the summer? I am going to do some deep relaxation. I'm going to go on some family trips, travel with my boyfriend, and honestly, just knit more. I feel like the grind never <laughs> stops. So I'm, I'm excited to start working on the summer pieces for my collections because knit is hard. It's very season-based, so I've been prototyping a lot of stuff. And I want to travel and find some farms to work with and just kind of go around New York State and see what I can find. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I hope the rest of the shoot goes well. No, thank you. This has been so lovely. Made to Last is a co-production between Mulberry and Danielle Radoichin at In Talks With. The theme music and sound design is by Warren Borg at Wargie Productions. To find out more about Mulberry and its Made to Last manifesto, as well as its sustainability goals, head to mulberry.com or join the conversation online via at Mulberry England on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Susie Lau and you can find me on at Susie Bubble on IG as well. <laughs>